My global IQ is 109. Not unlike many other countries, India was quite late in realizing the gravity of COVID-19 and taking steps to mitigate the virus's impact. But that changed very quickly on March 24th when the Prime Minister, Navendra Modi, put in place a three-week lockdown, draconian most consider. He said every state, every district, every lane, every village will be under lockdown. To provide context and insight, we're joined by Milan Vashnov. He joins us from Washington's Carnegie Endowment for International Peace where he's the director and senior fellow of the Think Tank's South Asia program. Great to have you with us. It's nice to see you. I just wish it were under different circumstances. Thanks for having me, Jim. So as I mentioned, the lockdown took place on March 24th, and it really took people by surprise. What's the background? What uh, led him to take such a measure and to do it in such a way with, I believe, only four hours notice? That's right. So as you mentioned, on March 24th, the prime minister announced a 21-day lockdown for the entire country. Every state, every district, every town, every village would be essentially uh, under a stay-at-home order. Uh, railways were shut. Uh, interstate connectivity was shut. Um, so people were really required to stay in place. Now, what went into this decision were really two things. One was India has had the benefit of really watching what was going on around the world, particularly in Europe and places like Italy, the United Kingdom and the United States, and seeing what didn't work. So they were seeing piecemeal approaches, uh, ambiguous uh, decision-making, uh, not very clear uh, from the top-down kind of messaging, and they decided that they wanted to avoid all three of those shortcomings. Uh, the second thing that went into this was, I think, a realization that given some of the most dire scientific models about how this virus could explode in India, and the very uh, sad reality of India's kind of anemic healthcare infrastructure, that if they didn't enforce a lockdown, uh, this was going to spiral out of control. Now, as we're talking today, just a few hours ago, the prime minister announced that on April 14th, he plans to start unwinding this lockdown in some kind of staggered fashion. Now, we don't have any details on that. That clearly shows that India, like so many other countries, including the United States, are struggling with how do you balance the impact of, uh, on the economy and the negative impacts that this, this shutdown is having with the public health benefits of having people shelter in place. Um, so we're going to expect more details in the coming days, but he is already trying to signal that uh, we can't do this forever. Yeah, but one of the main issues with that, as we're seeing in the United States, is testing. And I suspect, in fact, I'm quite sure that India's ability to test its population is probably as, as dire as ours right now. Well, right now, the data is actually worse. And recall that the testing in the United States is, 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 is not performed very well compared to a lot of the other countries. So India has done as of March 31st, a few days ago, just around 40,000 tests for the entire country. So that's about 19 tests per million population, right? What the government is planning on doing is taking government labs. They have now opened up uh, understandings with private labs to ramp up that testing over time. But it's been very slow going. So if you look at the data today, 
as of this morning, India only has around 2,000 confirmed COVID cases and about 50 fatalities. Now, and one most, thing I read too is that with the private uh, offices that are offering the testing, they're allowed to charge up to $60. Is that still the case? So they are trying to enforce this, but in a country of 1.3 billion people, enforcing you know, free testing obviously is, is, is very, very difficult. So uh, what the government is very concerned about is you know, price gouging of, of, of hoarding, of selling things on the black market, such as masks and other PPE equipment. Um, so mo I would expect these numbers uh, to be much higher than they actually are and to increase in the next few days. Milan, give me a sense of the relation right now between the, the capital and the states. I assume Modi was able to do this across the entire country. So under the National Disaster Management Act, which is what has been invoked, uh, that gives the central government pretty draconian powers of managing the country's affairs in the time of natural disasters. Now, some states have pushed back saying that the central government has crossed the limits of what is authorized under that act. But by and large, most of India has expressed solidarity with the prime minister's decision. One interesting thing we're seeing, just as we're seeing in this country, is variation in how states in India are responding to the crisis. So the state of Kerala in the South has been extremely aggressive both in anticipating the crisis, ramping up testing, and doing you know, East Asian style uh, contact tracing. So once they know who's infected, really doing uh, hundreds, if not thousands of, 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 of uh, contact tracings around them to figure out who they've been around in the last you know, couple of days or weeks. And they've also been very aggressive in announcing relief packages in terms of social services. Now, Kerala is a state that is renowned the world over for its, its social sector capacity. Uh, the same is not true all across India, but it does show that we're seeing some ingenuity in the part of individual regional leaders like we are in the United States, say in Washington State or New York or other places. One of the things that I just read was that some people are calling uh, the virus uh, Corona Jihad. How is this exacerbating the already tense relations uh, between the Hindus and the Muslims in India? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. So leading up to this crisis, uh, India was in the midst of another crisis, which was uh, a series of sustained protests uh, by Indian Muslims and by other Indians who felt that the government had taken new legal and constitutional measures to essentially promote a kind of pro-Hindu majoritarian outlook. And so beginning from December until just before this crisis began, we saw hundreds, thousands of people on the streets day after day protesting these moves. So the climate was already set, was already fraught for this kind of social division. One of the things which has happened in recent days, which has uh, thrown some more uh, fuel on the fire, so to speak, is that there was a religious gathering of Indian Muslims in New Delhi. Uh, and they gathered in quite a large number in defiance of what was allowed at the time. That has become a central cluster of transmission for this coronavirus. And so this in some ways is the single worst thing that could happen to the Indian Muslim community because it has now created a narrative on social media and among hate groups that Muslims are responsible for, for this virus. Obviously, we know that's not true. Yes, this was a vector, but obviously uh, you can't equate the two.
While we're talking about Muslims, what's happening in Pakistan? I've seen very little about that. So Pakistan, we don't get as much information. Of course, there are constraints on, uh, on Pakistan's democracy. The military plays a very large role uh, that constricts the free flow of information and transparency. But what we do know is that the reported cases uh, are actually the highest in all of South Asia. The government has really struggled and fumbled in its attempt to keep a lid on this crisis. Unlike India, they have not enforced a wholesale lockdown of the country. They've moved in a more piecemeal fashion. So I suspect that in the coming days, we're going to, to be hearing continued and increased dire news from Pakistan uh, as the numbers and information gets out. Dallas Baptist University is a global Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher at leeb at dbu.edu. As you well know, the United States and India have such a close, almost symbiotic economic relationship that continues to grow, especially here in Dallas with TI and WePro has a major office here. How do you see uh, this affecting the economy and especially the supply chain? Well, you know, there's the, the, there's the good news and bad news story. Now, the, the, the bad news story, as I mentioned, is that um, we have a huge crisis in India right now with internal migrants. These are people who work on construction sites, who work uh, in agriculture. Uh, we are now approaching the major harvest season. Um, so that's a big issue. We have limited testing of a weak health infrastructure. But on the upside, there are a couple of factors that some people are hoping, uh, they're just threads that people are trying to grasp onto, that, that the crisis could not be as bad as, as projected. Uh, number one is, as we're seeing, we're seeing a lot of ingenuity in terms of how states and local governments are responding to the crisis. Number two is, demographically, India has a very young population, right? The median age is around 27, and we know that young people are able to recover from this virus much faster than the elderly. They're less vulnerable. The third, and this is very untested, scientists are trying to address this issue right now, is this question of the weather. As we approach the hot season in India, will heat and humidity be a factor that helps to limit transition? Now, we don't, we don't know that yet, but there's a lot of hope on that. But undoubtedly, growth is, is going to come down. The, the, the projection for uh, this uh, year looks to be around 2 to 2.5%. Two now, that sounds great by Western standards, but, but India uh, really needs 7 to 9% growth just to keep up with the natural pace of uh, its demographics and its labor force entry. But conversely, India does have a population, that I think it's the highest percentage population in the world of TB, um, you know, inferior medical uh, services. And so all that's going to make it, it seems to me, much more difficult for it to uh, come out of this crisis. Well, there's, there's two things. One is that the underlying disease burden is very high. Uh, particularly when you look at things like respiratory illnesses. Uh, I'm sure many of your viewers are familiar with the statistic that of the 15 most polluted cities in the world, according to the World Health Organization, 14 of those 15 
are in India, right? So, so that is a vulnerable population. The second is, as you mentioned, the weak health infrastructure. India has 0.7 hospital beds per 1,000 people. All right, in Italy, it's 3.4. In the United States, it's around three. Uh, in the entire country, the best estimate is that the country only has about 50,000 ventilators, right? So this is going to be a massive challenge, even if they avert the worst projections. Yeah, I, I read uh, last night that the Spanish flu, 1918-1919, 18 million Indians died. It was 6% of the country's population. In fact, the author of this piece said, perhaps it should have been called the Indian flu. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is something that uh, people have been talking about in the scientific and development community for a long time about pandemic preparedness. Uh, and India has been very lucky that in many of the previous crises, whether it's SARS or others, they've kind of dodged a bullet. Now, this is something that uh, doesn't look like it's going to be uh, avoided, even if the risk gets mitigated. Um, one thing to point out is that in addition to the lockdown, the government has rolled out a roughly $23 billion economic package a couple of days after the lockdown was announced to provide for India's poorest. So these are free rations, free cooking gas cylinders, a cash transfers on a monthly basis for 200 million households uh, every month for three months. Now, uh, that sounds like a great package, but a lot of critics say, you know, this aid represents just less than 1% of India's GDP. So I suspect we are going to see in the coming weeks increased pressures on the government to increase that assistance, but also find a way to deal with this transitional migrant population that is very, it works in, informal, uh, in the informal sector. So they aren't necessarily tapped into the official social security or safety net. Do you have any sense what's happening or what has happened with so many of the Indian uh, migrants who were in the UAE or other areas of the Middle East or elsewhere in the world? So the, the government has been working uh, at a pretty rapid clip to try to repatriate some of those Indian workers. As you mentioned, the biggest concentration comes from the Gulf. And in fact, this has only sharpened the inequality divide because what a lot of people are saying is, oh, well, you are working to deal with the plight of non-resident Indians who are overseas, but what about the Indians who are in your own country who are going, say, from a poor village in rural Bihar to the big city uh, and want to go back? Who's providing for them? They should be on an equal footing with those who are coming from abroad. We have about another minute, and there's been so much discussion here about China and how it's using its soft power to uh, especially in Africa. I, I, I'm wondering what in, uh, China's role has been in India and, and how it's being perceived. Well, I think there's a, there's a big backlash in India, to be honest with you. Uh, this debate we're having in the United States about whether we should call this the Chinese virus or the Wuhan virus, uh, if you follow Indian social media uh, and the media at large, they have been very aggressive about saying, when this is all said and done, we need to have a true accounting of what the Chinese have done. Uh, you know, India and China have a very interesting and often tense relationship. They cooperate uh, on trade and investment. Of course, they share a massive border. But when it comes to Chinese expansionism, 
uh, Chinese uh, uh, security uh, moves in in the greater Asia Pacific, India is 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 very very wary, and that has actually brought India closer to the United States. I think one silver lining that could come out of this is that uh, India and the U.S., as you mentioned before, have so many strong economic linkages that given the raw talent in the tech industry, the innovation we see in India's version of Silicon Valley, we're already seeing some partnerships form between Indian companies, American companies, American academics to try to innovate in terms of creating low-cost ventilators, creating low-cost testing. So that's something to look forward to, I think, where this U.S.-India partnership could actually pay dividends. For both in fact, that was going to be my last question. What has been the role of the Indian diaspora here in the United States to assist India? Well, I think you've got to remember that uh, inward remittances from the diaspora back home uh, is around $80 billion a year. Uh, so India gets the biggest uh, inward remittances of any country in absolute terms. So I expect that obviously to continue. I think number two is uh, we saw news just yesterday of a small firm in Pune in the state of Maharashtra that is a robotics firm. They are going to create ventilators with the help of MIT blueprints and production assistance from uh, U.S. firms, which include many uh, executives of, the, of, of Indian background, to try to create ventilators at one third of the global cost. So you could see this kind of thing proliferating, and I think we're going to see more of this. And, and that really, I think, is a testament to the, the, the strength of the U.S.-India partnership, which, which really relies on this tremendous people-to-people -people, uh, connection. You know, there are over 1% one, uh, 1 of America's population is of Indian descent. Um, and, and that could be a real a boon at a time like this. Well, I'd like to end on some good news. Uh, thanks so much for being with us. I know you're in your house with two toddlers. Uh, really appreciate you taking time to be with us. And this is our first spotlight on a country, and we'll be doing this over the course of the next few weeks as we continue to watch the impact of COVID-19 on various countries around the globe. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jim.